Yes, we've been working on it for the last two years. It's finally complete. We've got our 30 days of coaching that we've put together. This right here, the idea behind this was to give you guys... This uh, is the ill nana, as you would say. That's right. Every day we are dropping knowledge on you, so it's absolutely free. You go to the website, mindpumpmedia.com, you click on the pop-up, you fill your name and email out. Every single day you'll get dropped an email of information where also we have all the episodes that we talked specifically about that topic time-stamped so you don't got to listen to any of the fluff. You don't got to listen to Justin's stupid jokes or Sal go rambling on we'll off talk, of space. Topic, topic, topic. That's right. Yeah. Just, just <laughs> yeah. load you five million more times. Full of great information. It's absolutely free. Some of the topics we cover are the basics like fat, proteins, carbs, calories. We go into thermogenesis. Uh, we go into... Gut flora, um, microbiome. Uh, wellness. We go into meditation. We go into resistance training, flexibility, mobility, like... It's a, it's a great resource. It's absolutely free. Check it out, mindpumpmedia.com. If you want to pump your body and expand your mind, there's only one place to go. Mind Pump. Mind Pump. With your hosts, Sal Stefano, Adam Schaefer, and Justin Andrews. I was so excited to talk to this mofo because you know why? When we got into, we had Stephen Kotler, Rise of Superman, Stealing Fire author, like about a month and a half, two months ago. And I asked him about psychedelics. I wanted to get into microdosing because a lot of these guys... It's like the thing right now. It is. And they, and they discuss it in the book, but he totally took a left turn on me. And then we got to meet and hang out with Tom Bilyeu. And Tom kind of gave me this little head nod. He says, yo, bro, reach out to Jamie Wheel. He'll drop some knowledge on you. He's a co-author of Stealing Fire. And he oh. we in this episode you're about to listen to, we get pretty deep with the whole psychedelic uh, world. And yeah, disclaimer it, right here. If you're if you're somebody who just like gets totally offended by that stuff, probably not the episode for you. You probably shouldn't be listening to my Those of you that are actually intrigued by this subject, which I'm completely fascinated and intrigued by it, uh, this is a phenomenal episode because you get to talk to a brilliant man. Yeah, a smart person that describes it. Absolutely. Um, you can find him on Facebook at Jamie Wheel. That's J-A-M-I-E-W-H-E-A-L. Uh, or Stealing Fire. Um, you can also go to the flowgenomeproject.com or stealingfirebook.com. So without any further ado, here we are tripping out with Jamie Wheel. Whoa. We had Steven on here, what, maybe, what, six months ago, Doug? No, not that long ago. Was it less than that? Yeah. It's got it's like three months. Yeah, like three months ago. I, try, I tried to get him to talk a little bit about psychedelics, and he just took a left on me real fast. Uh. <laughs> and I was telling Tom Bilyeu, when he was in here, I was like, man, I was so... I've, I had just finished Rise of Superman. I was just starting uh, Stealing Fire, uh-huh. and I was so excited to kind of ask him about microdosing and things like that, and he just avoided the question completely. Uh-huh. So I figured, okay, obviously I can't talk about this. And then I was talking to Tom about it, and he's like, oh, you have to talk to Jamie. Jamie will be more open to talk about that stuff. I'm like, okay, thank God. I was like, you wrote the fucking book, bro, and I can't talk about that shit with you? Now that you said that, uh, we're going to talk about something else. (laughs) Canasta, you know? Yeah, let's do it. Do you you think that we're, like, tapping into, like, this kind of – because you guys talk about it in in Stealing Fire, how these – top performers are using uh, some of these substances to improve their creativity and uh, you know the way that they you know their productivity do you think that we're kind of just scratching the surface and that the, if you go deeper it's it's even it's an even bigger part of that whole that whole thing 
Well, when you say an even bigger pot, in what way? Like what direction do you think? Like uh, when you get into the upper echelon of management and you're working mm-hmm. that they, that this is like, this is what they do. This is part of what like they do. Like it's going to become like a staple thing for all big companies. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Hmm. I mean, I don't know whether it will ever go overtly mainstream mm-hmm. and kind of organizational psychology and optimization. Um in the sense that it's obviously there's there's state sanctioned uh, penalties and risks yeah. in most places that kind of thing. But as far as the ubiquity of it, and as far as how many different, I mean, Silicon Valley always becomes the poster child mm. for this stuff. But it's happening with like high frequency uh, traders on in, you know in New York. It's happening, all, you know, London, Tokyo, Europe. It's happening in a lot of places. Whether it just remains kind of the clandestine killer app. Um, that that that's my sense. Although I mean, we really were legitimately surprised when teams of engineers would come up to us. I mean, what we describe in the book, they would come up to us after we're giving talks on neuroscience and they'd be like, hey, psst, we're all microdosing. <laughs> you know? So, and you know, and that's at major search yeah. names, you know, search giants who shall not be named. And you're like, okay, so this is, this is fascinating that you're getting a blend of what used to be like recreational hedonism we do this on our spare time discreetly into this is actually a performance optimization mm-hmm. tool. And, and, you know, I think microdosing is distinct from well, like what Tim Ferriss was talking about when we interviewed him of most of the billionaires in Silicon Valley I know use psychedelics on a regular basis. That's a different thing. That's a deep dive, blow out the pipes. What kind of super complex post-conventional insights can I gain about wicked problems I'm interested in solving at a global scale? That's a very different thing than like biohacking optimization with microdosing. So can you can you explain that for our listeners? What the the major difference between like a a regular dose of psychedelics versus this microdosing? I I had never heard of microdosing until like maybe three, four years ago. Before Mm -hmm. that, I was just Mm -hmm. didn't even know what that was. So can you explain to our listeners the difference between a microdose and a regular dose of psychedelics? Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, you can kind of roughly put it into three categories. You've got microdosing, which means it's a sub-perceptual threshold amount of a substance, meaning you take it and you don't notice anything is meaningfully different. So it would be like drinking a, a you know a non-alcoholic beer. It would be kind of like that. There's still some or decaf coffee. There's still a little bit of an action in that. But what's happening in the case of microdosing psychedelics is it all interacts with our serotonin system. Mm. So most people are microdosing with LSD or psilocybin. Those all interact with our serotonin system, which is the same system that Prozac and any of the antidepressants interact with. They just do it differently. So what we're doing is we're literally using sort of almost homeopathic doses, right? It's just enough to activate our serotonin system in different ways that impacts brain function, mood, focus, and problem solving at a, again, sub-perceptual threshold level. I don't notice it other than maybe a little bit of brightness, other than maybe I, I just find myself after the fact having worked a little longer, produced a little more, mm-hmm. right? Felt a little better. It's all very incremental and subtle. Um, but James Fadiman, who's been, who's been leading most of that microdosing research, um, it's well, it's consistently beyond placebo. It's not just a bunch of people doing it and thinking stuff might be better. So that's the low level microdosing. The mid level is what you would kind of used to be called the museum dose, or now it's kind of more like the IMAX dose. Like what would meaningfully enhance an experience, but you can still maintain more or less, you know, the kind of class high school or college kid play. Um, and so that's, that's functional augmentation of reality. Mm. And then you have the heroic dose. You know, that's what Terrence Yikes. McKenna used to, you know, he used to show five grams silent darkness. In fact, there's even like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and those are blow out the pipes. You're getting into some very different terrain. Mm. And, and each of them 
you know, conveys different benefits, has different risks, time requirements, et cetera, and definitely who you'd want to travel and do it with. Well, let's talk about that for a second. What does, first off, what does the science say about microdosing um, and the museum dose and these massive doses? Mm-hmm. Uh, do, do we have studies on them that show, you know, what they do differently or what they do the same? Yeah, I mean, I think we would have to kind of cobble that together mm-hmm. from the different research because, you know, it's only in the last five years or so that you've kind of had the psychedelic renaissance of more and more sanctioned research at top tier universities, people doing really credible stuff. And, you know, as we talk about in Stealing Fire, I mean, the majority of that research all started out with trauma survivors and or terminal patients. Mm-hmm. It was like, it was the idea of like just doing these studies on regular folks looking to optimize or augment their life would have sort of been irresponsible. Mm-hmm. So for the most part, the majority of the research is either redoing and reconfirming with better measurement tools and, you know, new tech studies that were run in the fifties and sixties and just going, yep, there's still definitely a there, there, mm-hmm. you know, and then the next step has been dealing with people with problems, you know, I'm facing terminal cancer or even smoking cessation or something along those lines. So can we come up with a problem in the quote unquote human marketplace? Can we test these things and validate? I don't think there's too many people that are sort of doing comparative stack ranking of dosages and different efficacy um, because that would just be straight up advocacy. (laughs) (laughs) And and I think we're we're a couple of laps in funding and approval cycles and just general, uh, as much as anything else, academic acceptance of these things for people to do that kind of cross. Yeah, we have to be very careful, right? Because uh, if you do any kind of a study or anything that says, hey, this is great, you can use this, then they they frown upon that, you don't get funding. Mm -hmm. In the past, the only funding available was to study addictive properties and negative effects, mm-hmm. or at least before um, or after the, the drug war started. Because before that, there were some pretty interesting studies done on some of these sub- substances, mm-hmm. and then they shut them all down um, and you know made it pretty much impossible to obtain uh, these substances and study them and get funding for them. Mm-hmm. Um, what has changed now? Why are we seeing more, you know, why are they opening the doors a little bit? Well, I mean, you know, in no small part, you have to give uh, Rick Doblin and MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, a huge hat tip. They, they, they took it for 30 years through the wilderness of everything you're just <coughs> describing. And with slow, steady, relentless and disciplined advocacy um, started just, you know, chinking down the wall, a, a, a brick at a time. And as they did that and some of the early studies started coming back, the, the data really just started speaking for itself and, and the amount, the impact of MTMA studies on trauma, the impact of creativity and problem solving with psilocybin, and you know, just it, the stuff works, and it works so much better. I mean, if you take, for example, um, I mean, to me, what's really interesting is not quote unquote psychedelics or what are cool drugs for people mm-hmm. to try. It's that oh, we are now getting new and additional insights into our neurochemical systems and the impact of neurochemistry, our internal neurochemistry, on our consciousness and our performance. And back in the 50s and early 60s, they sort of there was a simultaneous discovery of you know, interactions of the serotonin receptor sites, psilocybin and LSD. And it was like this you know, momentary little sort of renaissance in that study. And then the active ingredient, you know, the, the agents, psilocybin and LSD, become shut down, controlled substances, no research as you described. And we're left with, hmm, there's this serotonin system. And 20 years later, we get this weak sauce version of Prozac and SSRIs, mm-hmm. which become blockbuster drugs in, sp- in spite of the fact of how badly they suck, 
right? And what we're getting now is just, people don't realize that. By the way, they do. They do have a horrible efficacy rate. Oh yeah, and they were based on some incredibly small, poorly run studies in in the mid '80s, and they just big farmer was just like, oh, this might fly. Let's try it. So the entire mechanism of interaction that, that, that selective serotonin reuptake and inhibition is the best and singular solution to depression and anxiety is a crock of shit. It's just it, they sold it and they've pushed it. So now we're coming back online and like neuropsychologist Molly Crockett, at, she, was at, she was at UCLA, she's now at Oxford. She's, into, you know, she's doing comparative studies on the entire serotonin system. And she's done some fascinating research both on um, an event like Burning Man, a kind of transformational festival. And she's like, look, meditation, psychedelics, and attending at these events all imp- impact the serotonin system. They all create pro-social bonding and behavior and connections. And interestingly, she was just at Davos uh, for World Economic Forum and was talking about the opposite also being true. Is that when you see folks, for, for instance, like really uh, angry mob rule political rallies, those kind of things that we've been seeing more of around the world in the last couple of years, um, is also that chronic low-line stress, especially, you know, we're talking about how, what is it, the, that white middle-class Americans are now the number one disease, like deaths of despair, mm. right? Su- suicide, depression, addiction, that, that's what's killing the white middle-class in disproportionate numbers these days. And her, her research was suggesting that when people are constantly stressed, meaning they got a lot of norepinephrine and cortisol in their system, like, I don't have a job, or I don't know what my future is, or I, like, I'm unmoored in my story, mm-hmm. right, within the national narrative and the changes in the world kind of thing, um, that, that that chronic baseline stress is also depleting people's serotonin is leading them to be more irritable, more combative, right? And more prone to needing these movements. So when you think about like the recent political movements and elections, you're like, oh, no, like the sort of liberal coastal, you know, folks in media could not understand what was so compelling and persuasive about a Trump rally. Mm-hmm. You're like, there's no policy, there's no decision. What's what, what it was was communitas. People were being offered a chance to bond together, have their narratives validated. In the fragmented world, we're all stuck behind our flat screens and commuting to work and feel completely isolated from our neighbors. Like there was a chance to say, here's your people, you belong, you you have a right, you have dignity, you have power. Right? And, and that element of the conversation, with which Molly Crockett uh, has done a great job mapping, is fundamentally like the hidden story behind this last year of populism around the world, is that people want to connect and they want to bond. Mm. And serotonin, ironically, <laughs> is at the heart of an awful lot of this stuff. It's interesting you say that because it's almost like this, uh, this double-edged sword. Uh, it, it is a very powerful driver for humans to want to belong and connect. But we've seen throughout history how that can be uh, for good or it can be done for bad. You've mm-hmm. got, you know, group flow when people are, you know, and I'm using the terminology that you guys use in your book, um, which uh, both books are absolutely fascinating. But uh, you've got group flow where you've got people working together for a common good. And then you seem to have like mob, mm-hmm. this mob mentality or when people like, you know, a, a game, you know, a team loses a hockey game and people go out and riot. And are, are, do they have things in common? Yes. Yeah. So the simple thing is, is that um, and, and it's also kind of what's potentially new and exciting about right now. Mm-hmm. But TBD, how it all plays out. Right. Because mm-hmm. in the past, if you went like, let's say, you know, just to wind back, if so you go back to the French Enlightenment. Right. We really established then the role of the rational individual. You know, so Descartes, Descartes said, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Here is my, like, I define my rule. You know, uh, Rousseau was talking about the tabula rasa, like a man is a blank slate. 
right? And we write upon it that, you know, the arc of our life. So that whole idea, like I'm me and I can choose what to do and I use my brain and my thinking to, you know, with my five senses to establish reality and then go interact with it. Mm-hmm. And that was actually a pretty novel idea. And that was instead of all the sort of superstitious group think, tribal, magical thinking, you know, easily swayed sort of peasantry and tribalism of, of the past before it. Um, when people go beyond that, beyond the rational individual, you can go one of two places. You can either descend into a rational mob, right? I lose myself in the collective. And that's following cults and gurus. That's all the kind of stuff that, you know, parents and teachers and law enforcement and things are rightly concerned about. Mm-hmm. Like, don't do it, right? Maintain your individuality. But then there's this other thing that can happen. And it's rarer, but it's happening now more than maybe for the first time ever, which is a not just a pre-rational collectivism, I lose myself in the mob, but a post-rational collectivism, meaning I connect with other people, but I still have my agency, I still have my sovereignty, I still have my choice, right? And so you will see that in an experience like Burning Man, which is that people come together, but everybody is like owning their own experience. And if anybody does try and hop up and and, and hog the mic, they get laughed at. Mm. It's tone deaf. It's like, sit the fuck down. Oh, wow. Take a number. Say, take a number, son. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right? We're all here. And so that's, it's like they're all, bond, they're all bonding because they're all unique versus bonding because they're all the same. Yeah, exactly. So rather than giving up my agency and my discernment and my free will to, to merge with the Borg, right? It, right? <laughs> the Borg. <laughs> right? It, it's, it's we are still completely autonomous. And we're choosing to play and blend together. And there's actually really cool studies on flow research, which says that individual flow, let's say, gives you kind of five points of juice or reward and parallel play, meaning we're doing shit together like we're surfers out in a lineup together or that kind of thing gives me like seven points. But interrelated flow, meaning we're playing jazz or, you know, or we're uh, literally like my, my high is dependent on your interaction and we're creating something together. That's the off the charts. That's, that's yeah. the full 10. That's like the SEAL team you guys talk yeah. about, right? What yeah. they have to be able to do. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I always remember hearing, like, it, it wasn't Kelly Slater, but it was some of the, I think it was some of the, the Maui boys that were on the pro surf tour and they started their own band. And a couple of them dropped off the pro surf tour to go play music. And you're like, oh shit, those boys, like getting barreled in the green room, that's as good as it gets. And they found something better. And you feel sorry for their girlfriends, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So, I would say interactive, collaborative is about as good as it gets. That's the next. Now, Jim, you've been to quite a few Burning Mans. How many have you been to total? Mm, Five, I think. Five of them. Mm -hmm. What are some of the the, uh, things that have stuck with you? I mean, obviously, you probably get something great every time. But what Mm -hmm. were some major life-changing things that have happened to you while you've been there? Mm. Um, I mean, I think the first time I went, the the biggest experience I had... It was sunrise on my first day there. So like we'd come in in the daytime and I was like, wait, seriously, this looks like just like a broke ass tailgate party in the middle of the fucking desert. Like, <laughs> That's what, what it sounds like. like <laughs> what is up with that? Like I'm so like under post-apocalyptic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was because it's where all the cars are and where all the camps are. Right? And so that's all I saw. And then I, and I went out with some friends the first night and, uh, and I just went to bed. I was like, okay, I'm, you know, whatever. I'm checking this out, but I'm not deeply feeling it. And then they still raged all night and came back in at like 4 a.m. to kind of re-up and go back out. And they're like, and I kind of woke up and I'm like, and they're like, you want to come? I'm like, yeah, sure. Why the fuck not? So hot, we, we, we popped our vitamins and we, I went out on our, on our bike ride and the sun was coming up and the man was there. And like, we rode out to see like this robot hut is a camp that plays way the fuck in the back of beyond. And, um, was riding along and I just had this complete like 
three-minute download of information about my entire life, my entire relationship with my wife, my relationship with my kids, exactly where I had blocked them and prevented them from growing fully, and exactly what I needed to do when I went home. And I was lit up like a Roman candle. I, I survived. I, I subsisted on nothing but coconut water, raw almonds, and avocados for the rest of the rest of the time. <laughs> Barely slept. And like, and, and at the end of that transmission was like, like transmission over like no more fun for you son for the rest of the week go back and do your work and that was just humbled but like that was that was game changing and i'm still trying to live into like the implications and and obligations of that um and then sweet jesus i mean yeah it's just like the raddest shit like most times like if you get into like hippie culture or new age culture people are like oh like i feel really one with the earth and you know like and i, and I really embrace that tree and like i got in touch with my past lives and i think i was in camelot or like maybe i was cleopatra <laughs> like never never i was an i was an anonymous peasant who died an early painful death no, again yeah, it's, always right? something glamorous, right? yeah. it's always something awesome yeah. um like but that's not what's going on at burning man like at burning man you're like holy shit we are building like this giant radio antenna to the back of the galaxy people are like what fucking star tribe are you from (laughs) so so yeah needless to say there is plenty of far out uh, information and inspiration now you in the book stealing fire i believe you guys talk about uh the hedonic calendar am Mm -hmm. i saying that right yeah yeah yeah. now is that something you guys came up with or yes okay so explain that i was actually just talking to a buddy that's into all this stuff Uh and you know we've got we've now surrounded ourselves with quite a few brilliant minds and the more we meet the uh the more common this topic is right oh, no way. yeah and so the one thing i do notice i feel like there's two sides right there's either the guy or girl who embraces it utilizes it as a tool and then there's the other side who i find feel like they they identify so much with it that it becomes almost like they're chasing it all the time sure you know and and you guys, I, you guys talk about the hedonic calendar. So, can you get into that a little bit? How did you come up with that? The importance of that, and is yeah. that why? Because you feel like if you continue to chase it so much, it becomes your end all be all. Is that the purpose of it? Well, I mean, like in pursuing uh, and and just you know, just kind of define tech terms a bit. So, we talk about ecstasis in the book, which is like a big ass tent, which would just include the literal definition is you know an experience that takes you outside yourself ecstasis to stand mm-hmm. beyond oneself so that includes meditation and mystical states smart tech sexually prompted states you know edm and dance states um and 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 psychedelic states as well so so pharmacology contemplation smart tech and, and, and flow states so like in action and sports and those Got kind it. of things so for most people their first question is kind of like hunting their white whale like really is that, is that kind of awesome really available in my life nah no nah, way you know you're, you're one more snake oil salesman it's like no 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 go do it like go go hunt your motherfucking white whale, right? <laughs> and find it. And most people are actually somewhat surprised that it's actually there and it's actually that easy. And then becomes the question of where the hell's the brakes? Because if you get really good at hacking the most addictive neurochemistry in mm. our bodies, you can get really good. And then you won't want to do anything else. It's like Charlotte in Sex and the City, like when she finds the rabbit vibrator and she's just like, <laughs> becomes a, a shot. What a great analogy. Right? Yeah. You're like, let's just keep pressing that the fucking button again, seen, and, again and again. Right? So... So the hedonic calendar is basically like, okay, so this, like back in the day, there was, you know, spiritual paths, paths to waking up were sort of considered right hand or left hand. And right hand were orthodox paths. And that was filled with lowest common denominator, thou shalt and thou shalt nots. Because we had to basically base it on what if Homer Simpson followed this instruction and had no judgment, no discipline, no willpower, so we have to make the rules for Homer. 
right? And that's most conventional religions. And then there was always, in every single religious tradition, there's always a secret crew running the left-hand path, which say, it's all good, let's mm. do it, right? Now, those paths, um, you know, in fact, uh, in the Western tradition, it was like the idea that the left-hand path is the fastest route to getting woke with the lowest success rate, right? So mm. if, if, you can, if you can ride that rocket, it'll get you there in record time. But the number of people that put in the ditch is just wreckage all the way. Mm. So the question mm. is, is, okay, okay, so now we have access to all these techniques. These used to be totally locked down by gatekeepers and priests. Right? So we regular folks did not have access to this information, did not have access to these tools. Now we do, right? So the question is, is once you start going down this road, we have no checks and balances on what to do with them. And so that's where the calendaring comes in because now what happens if, you know, let's say you and your, your woman decide, okay, we're gonna practice this, we're gonna engage in sexuality, psychedelics, breath work, music, dance, you know, body movement, all the stuff that you guys do, right? Fox, radical like embodiment, radical at once. Let's <laughs> do all of it fucking at once. Yeah, let's yeah, see yeah. how that sounds goes. like a Put hell of a weekend sandwich. right there. <laughs> I call that Wednesdays. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's just spoiler alert, fucking yeah. awesome, right? And so, so then like when do you, like, and then what will happen? Most people, just as you're starting to create those experiences where you're starting to just burn through anything that is not pure, like mm. you've turned up the heat in the crucible, it's on. Most people, when they experience the twinges of addiction or they experience like dark elements of their personality or relationship coming up, will get spooked. And they'll be like, ah, oh, shit, let's back off. And, then, and it'll trigger all the unprocessed, unexamined guilt, shame, fear. Mm -hmm. And people will back away from the very practice that was actually about to give them a level up. Mm -hmm. So now people will say, oh, well, I can't get high or we can't fuck or we can't do this or we can't do that as often or as much or maybe not at all. So then what you've done, even though you're playing with left-hand practices, you've actually just created another right-hand path. You've got thou shalts and thou shalt nots. So subtly, you actually aborted the project right when it was going to get to a place that mm. was going to yeah. burn through to the next level. So the question is, is now how do I play with these tools knowing that 99% of the people who have gone down this road have ended up dead or insane or destitute right? <laughs> and do it anyway with those impossible tugging motions that are going to pull me towards addiction, compulsion, and self-delusion. So that's where you set up your checks and balances. Yeah. Now, how common would you say that is? Like, you know, and I know you probably don't have the exact number, but for someone to go down that path like that, like how, how important do you find it for people to have those checks and balances? Or is it one of those things that a lot of people get involved in? It's just like a runaway train. They can't stop. I mean, I think it's essential. Yeah. So it's kind of like, it's like high altitude mountaineering. Like you, you don't live long in the big mountains if you don't set and abide by your turnaround times. You know, like it doesn't matter how close we are to the summit. If we're not at, if we're not standing on top of it by 1 p.m., we turn around no matter what. And you set that shit up in advance. Ed, Ed Weisters, who's you know, one of the heroes of, of Everest and everything else, he said, you know, summiting is optional, coming down, coming home is mandatory. Mm. And Journal of American Alpine uh, accidents and incidents is 70% of fatalities occur on the descent. So mm. it's like people can handle getting to the summit. That's the fun, easy right, part, right. eyes on the prize. Of course we want then the Then they selfie. shut down. And then they jump the shock on the way down. Mm. Their vigilance centers are down, they're fatigued, they're whatever. And, and, and the same true with this path, right? You have a lot of people that get into EDM and transformational festivals. You have people that get into, you know, going to Burning Man and doing something else. People get into microdosing and biohacking, whatever these things are. And um, they set out thinking they are a master of their own course. 
so they don't need to set the parameters up in advance. Um, but but it's only once you stop and you wonder around like, am I lost? Are mm. we lost? Wait, where'd the trail go? Too late. <laughs> yeah. And it's too fucking late. Yeah. You know? So yeah, I would say it's, it's non-negotiable. I think what I find uh, fascinating about uh, this movement now, because it feels like that, it feels like it's a movement. Mm -hmm. uh, it has a lot in common with what we saw in the 60s and 70s here uh, mm -hmm. in the US, but there's a lot of differences too. Like, the reason why I feel personally, my personal opinion is that this is going to get more accepted and we're going to start seeing this uh, be utilized um, in medical practices. Like I, I do think that we will see things like psilocybin and, uh, and LSD be used with therapists uh, today is because today the people using it are the ones that have uh, power and money and influence, whereas before it was a counterculture. And the ones that have power, money, and influence were the ones that were saying no Whereas today, now you see CEOs, you see mm -hmm. uh, intelligent people talking about these things. You see, you know, people are like you're saying, like they're discussing, like this is how you should probably do it. And it's not just about getting lost and parting. It's also mm -hmm. there's intent in how you do this. I feel like that's going to bring it, uh, bring it more to the forefront, make it more acceptable. Mm -hmm. At least I'm hoping. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you know, let's also know our history, which is before it went fruity, woolly counterculture. It was once again intelligentsia, educated elite. So when LSD was making the rounds. And in the late 50s, early 60s. It was point. psychiatrists. It was Cary Grant and Jack Nicholson. It was like, it was the intelligentsia of New, of New York, LA. I mean, Roger in Mad Men, like that scene where those guys are like dosing in their, you know, in their Manhattan apartment, like that was quintessential long before it became Dirty Hippies mm. in the Forest. So the idea is if anything, we're coming, we're, there's a return back to that in the mm. sense that this is now contextualized and it's not just these incredibly powerful tools with no constraints and a sense of nobody can tell me what to do. I'm free. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What what is some of the most uh, the newest science that's coming out with some of these uh, these these states of mind with these mm -hmm. substances? I saw recently it was on Facebook. Someone had posted a picture of a brain image of someone <laughs> on LSD. So I don't know how yeah. accurate this is, but it showed that the whole brain was lit up and more side. You know, the yeah. brain can communicate with other with you know the left can communicate easier with the right. And uh -huh. I don't know how accurate that was. What is some of the new stuff? Coming out showing. Yeah, I mean, and also, you know, obviously those static pictures of brains lighting up doing different things, you know, get, you know, justifiably pilloried by actual neuroscientists working in the okay. field. They're like, okay, this is gross simplifications and this is just kind That's of neuro porn blogosphere kind of stuff. Right? <laughs> no no neuro porn. porn. So, I use that hashtag. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> that killed my computer. <laughs> <laughs> this is your brain on frap. Yeah. Um, so, so um, but but I think the, the, the actual research that I'm guessing that that post was about was Robin Carhart Harris at Imperial College of London. And he did, he, he did at function like real time fMRI research with MDMA, psilocybin, and most recently LSD. And what he found with the LSD in particular was that you, I mean, a couple of things. One is, is that our sense of self. So when people talk about psychedelics or meditation or extreme endurance, athletic pursuits or whatever it was, creating an experience of ego death. Um, part of the reason is they're, they're like, oh, your sense of self is not a singular switch or location. It's actually kind of a network. And when you knock out a couple of the nodes in the network with a pharmacological primer, the whole system powers down. 
Mm-hmm. So it's almost like the you know like the X wings in in Star Wars, you know, flying over the Death Star and like shooting out a couple of the radar towers, and the whole shield goes down. It's kind of like that. So you can take down the shield of your ego identity, right? <laughs> and the, and the other one is that you know to to the point about the brain scan you saw, which is and it tends to prompt lateral connections with the neighbors next door that don't normally talk to each other. So neurotransmitters start connecting. It's a little bit like sort of like you know the old Italian tenements in Brooklyn or something, like shouting out the window to you know, like down the street. <laughs> Hey, Louie, you know, like, so like Louie, Louie and, and Maria are now having a conversation they never would have before. Mm-hmm. And those far-flung connections are creating lateralization, new insights, new ideas, new access to information, information and combinations of information mm-hmm. that would otherwise not be there. Interesting. Do you have a uh, personal experience with uh, any of these substances? Are you, are you okay to talk about that? I mean, you know, we can always just do the someone who isn't me. Right? Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. My <laughs> friend. Yeah. I was going to say, I was just going to start talking to you like that. My friend was wondering, yeah. actually. So this one time at band camp? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so uh, what experiences do you hear from people uh, when they do these things for the first time? Goodness gracious. For the first time? Um I mean, I think as much as anything, I mean, all, all the old stories, the Huxley stuff, you know, like the, the doors of perception being cleansed. I mean, I think if nothing else, people have a for some, maybe one of the first times in their life, they have a truly incontrovertible sense that, ah, the world is enchanted. Mm. There, there is actually more than this fucking saran wrap plastic existence, right, that I've mm. been suffocating in. And so I think, you know, if nothing else, man, that, that experience to understand, hey, you know, um, the, world, the world does have magic in it that I can feel like I have a place in the, in, in the broader experience, to me, that's, that's a sort of birthright experience. We used to get it with, you know, adolescent puberty initiations for young men and women, whatever it would be, you know, go out and suffer in order to have some breakthrough or some, you know, like true affirmation of what you're here to do. You know, and we've we've lost a lot of that, and there's lots of people making comments on that. So yeah, I mean, the, the psychedelic experience can serve in the right environments with the right you know right time, right place, right people, right dosage, right reasons, um, can serve as a powerful affirmation of who we are and what we're here to do. I, I've what you just said uh, in a nutshell is what I've heard so many people say, and uh, one of the more common things I'll hear is. It's hard to explain. You have to experience it, which mm-hmm. to someone sitting on the other end, it's like, why can't you explain? There's, there's no words. Like, what do you mm-hmm. mean there's no words? It's almost impossible uh-huh. to understand. What does that tell us about, uh, I guess, human consciousness? What does that tell us about the human experience if before somebody experiences one of these experiences, which can happen? And I want to be clear, you know, as you guys have explained, uh, I mean, stealing fire can happen many different ways. It doesn't have to be pharmacological. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be through, you know, fasting or chanting or, or mm-hmm. years of meditation. But what does that tell us about uh, this, I guess, this, this realm that we're maybe stuck in? Mm-hmm. And if we experience something else, I mean, what's your opinion on that? I mean, I think any transformative experience, including like something as simple as parenting or burying one of your parents, mm. right? You cannot describe to the person prior to the event what it's going to look and feel like to them after the event. You just can't. And that's the fundamental nature because you are going to be different. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a transformative experience. So some of them, like Zora Neale Hurston, who was like an early 20th century African-American poet and writer, she, you know, she had a great phrase. She said, you got to go there to know there. Mm. Right? So, so like that's just straight up. So you know, the question is, is like you can't describe to someone what it feels like to, take a, to, you know, to do a gainer 
off a 50 foot rock into the ocean, you know, while they're standing up to up front contemplating whether they should or they shouldn't or all the possible things that could go wrong. You like, just fucking do it, <laughs> yeah. you know, like do the prerequisite diligence, like make sure you're not, make sure there's deep enough water and you can land. There's not rocks you can't see. Great. Now you just got to sack up and do it. Did you have any opinions that you changed as you wrote this book? Did you go in having any preconceived notions and come out completely different or was it what you anticipated? Hmm. I mean, writing the present was like trying to wrestle a python. I mean, it was like trying to... Like, I couldn't even imagine. Oh, that was something. We bled for that book, for sure. Mm. Um, and as much as anything else, it was trying to get it through the gates of, you know, a publisher, and editor who may, you know, living in New York, not being a part of the things we're writing about, not right. necessarily understanding it, trying to steer us into like, let's write The Power of Habit. That was a good bestseller. And you're like, are you kidding? <laughs> we're 18 months into this fucker. You're telling us to write a self-help book now? You know, we're like, tell us more stories about some of the celebrities and awesome people that are doing all this stuff. And it's like, you have no idea how much we're stretching the Do they really try and do that to you guys? Is that what happens? Like, were Oh, it was bang your head against oh, a wow. wall. Insanity on that front. We're like, Talk about how hard that has to be for a writer. Yeah, what's that yeah. like going through that when you have this idea and then you're getting put, trying to get pushed in a direction? What's that like? Well, I mean, even when we're even just lining up longly press and media, you know, like Wall Street <clears throat> Journal, New York Times, Harvard Business Review, that kind of stuff. And, you know, and, and in fact, I think it was, for, it was an article for Entrepreneur. And, and they said, well, look, this is, we're talking about creativity. We're talking about the role of, you know, hacking altered states to boost creativity. Here's all the examples. Here's all the research. And they're like, yeah, but can you make this a little bit more actionable for our readers? And, it's, and I'm like, oh, are you fucking kidding me? So, you so, dumb it down a little bit. You no, know, no, it's literally, Please. so, so I, I just pulled something out of, of our flow training program, like our entry-level flow training program, which people do on app, you know, on an app, and they kind of have assignments. And I was like, here's what you do with your morning. You wake up, you, you know, drink a pint of water, you move, you don't go to your inbox, you defend your first 90 minutes you you know knock out your phone and they're like this is so amazing i think we could get this in the new york times how to take control of your first hour of your day and i wrote back to our to our to our editors like are you fucking kidding me? Like, we have just <laughs> written a book saying that the most the the, the most earth shattering yeah, revolution in human yeah. consciousness is happening with a clandestine global cabal of movers and shakers including richard branson larry page sergey Brin, elon musk right and the, and seal team fucking six and you're gonna <laughs> right. tell me that the, the grand insight of this book is the one hour you start is, your is, day. Don't check your email first. Oh I'm going to put a bullet in my own head. That's ridiculous. That's incredible. Did you have it, uh, any pushback from anybody in this clandestine you know, cabal of people? You know, not not yet, and not not that we have heard. What we have, I mean, currently, it's literally. Was this like asked for the permission later, or, ever or what? It's it's sort of on every. In, it's it's everywhere in the communities that we write about right now, and and I think that the biggest thing we've heard is, I can't believe that this movement that we all are actively a part of, but we we just haven't slowed down or had the frameworks to name. You guys have put into full context, and to read mm. about this shit as it's happening and as we're doing this mm. is game-changing you're defining the whole process for them yeah i mean hopefully like by having a story that serves like that i mean we, we knew i mean my hope was always that it's this is for prometheans these are for the folks who are already hacking consciousness and culture and it's for the next group and, th and those folks already know who they are mm -hmm. um and then there's the, like the closeted ecstatics the people who they've had yearnings for this they've got different parts of their life where they seek this stuff but they might feel guilty they're not quite sure where they have the need to go to vegas for a guy's weekend one every every year or two and they all score an eight ball and get booby slapped by coked, <laughs> coked up russian strippers they don't know what they're doing but they know it's essential to like maintain maintaining their vital life force, <laughs> even though they feel 
terrible about it and it's, it's not oh, super conscious, yeah. you know, all that kind of just stuff. beckons them. Right? Yeah. Why do I not sell, like, just give, you know, give away my guitar to Goodwill? Because, <laughs> like, like I, I've got No Woman, No Cry and Freebird and I've had that <laughs> since fucking college, you know, yeah. but, like, like they, it means something. My surfboard, like, there's a lot of closeted ecstatics who, who know that those are the moments I felt most alive in my life, but now I feel like, my, whether it's my wife or whether it's my boss or whatever who have moralized to me, mm-hmm. that that's Peter Pan shit. You got to put away childish things. You got to grow up. You got to get real. And it's like, nah, man, there's something there. Oh, for sure. Right. We I want- cracked the snowboard out after after reading the book. I was like, you know what? I haven't ridden in years. Exactly. And I was like, I have to go. I yeah. have to ride now after this. Yeah. And it was literally the most awesome ride I've ever had in my life. Just yeah. after oh, reading and taking that all in and then going like going in with that mindset of like just totally uh, being mindful and present of what, yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I can't yeah. wait to do that. Very, music. Yeah, yeah, very, very cool. Well, what was interesting to me, and I can't remember the term used for it, but it was uh, a, uh, the economy of, and I can't remember what it was. It was like the, the altered states. Yeah, economy? the altered states economy. Yeah. Can you talk about that first? Because that blew me the fuck away. First Thank of you. all. Thank you. Uh, I'm like, that is such an atom bomb and ba- barely anybody brings it up. Well, uh, so <laughs> wow. for me, when you, as you guys were listing all the things that you had to account for, which all made perfect sense. I didn't even think of half of them. Like I, when I think of altered states economy, I think of the obvious ones: alcohol, cigarettes, mm-hmm. coffee. You know, but there's so many other things that we do mm-hmm. to take ourselves out yeah. to to alter our state, uh, you know, our, our our consciousness a little bit. Yeah. Talk about that for a second. How big that is. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you know, this was kind of our due diligence on, you know, are we, you know, are we actually seeing something real here? Are we seeing a true social movement of historic proportions? And if so, what's the scale of it? So we we started with, you know, okay, let's take licit and illicit pharmaceuticals. That's easy, right? And and that included, obviously, um, street drugs, but it also included Prozac, Zoloft, included Ambien, included any of the anti-anxiety stuff. One in four Americans are on psychiatric meds these days. Wow, man. 25%? 25% of us are taking something on a daily, weekly basis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And these are mind-altering. the devil. These are mind-altering substances. People don't realize that. With powerful side effects. I mean, Mm -hmm. Ambien, the number of folks, especially like business, like executives that do the whole first class to Europe or Japan and China, do the flatbed, I'll pop an Ambien, I'll wake up the next day. Like we've got some functional medicine uh, physicians that oversee a lot of CEOs and that kind of stuff. And they're like, it can take three to six months after even just one business trip fucking up your circadian wow. rhythms with Ambien wow. and, and they can end up with psychosis, depression, like wow. hardcore things. And it takes up to half a year to recover from wow. like one two week trip where that's their hack. So hmm. yeah, so that was $2.2 trillion just in licit, illicit and gray market stuff. Then we were like, okay, well, what else are people doing where the primary drivers to shift my state of consciousness, not for some other goal or, or outcome? And that included everything from action adventure sports and ecotourism to psychiatry and self-help. So everything from Tony Robbins to my local therapist to the entire sort of online, you know, pop psych self-improvement marketplace. Uh, that was that was billions. You talk about indoor gambling. I mean, we didn't even do online gambling and fantasy football and that kind of stuff. She's like, look, just just take the classic, you know, Indian reservation or Vegas, Reno, you know, casinos where there's deliberately no outside light. They pump them full of 100% oxygen. There's no clock. So you're creating a sense of timelessness. You're creating a sense of hypervitality because you're getting maximum oxygen. You're creating free drinks. So ethanol and disequilibrium, scantily clad women. So sexual arousal and priming and peacocking. You're creating all of these states and then the dopamine rush. So when um, Robert Sapolsky at Stanford calls it the magic of maybe, but basically when 
And this explains why like grandpa still likes to golf or fly fish. Like, why do you do these incredibly frustrating things, grandpa? It's because if, you know, if you do something and you get an expected reward, it's 100% of dopamine. If you do something and sometimes you get the expected reward and sometimes you don't, mm. the next time you hit, it's 400%. It's 4x the wow. ROI oh, wow. just by being fucked with along the way. Yeah, so video right. game programmers have figured exactly. this out, right? So, so like why I would go and chase the elusive permit, you know, saltwater fly fishing. It's a son of a bitch fish to catch. You don't eat them. You know, <laughs> why does a guy do that? Because when he finally lands one, it is awesome. Yeah. And the same with a buddy or, you know, whatever it would be, right? I mean, like that's the, that's the ROI. So, so those, those are, um, those are additional huge tranches. Um, IMAX, online porn and binge watching, right, are all very specific visual, you know, consu- we consume visual media that way in every single one of them. Like we travel, we don't just wait to watch it in our house. We go to a big screen, we pay a premium ticket price for a 40 foot screen that eclipses our peripheral vision in the mm. pitch black where we're kind of loosely connected. We hear other people gossiping and booing and clapping, huge sound systems, right, that are pumping out the extra. And that's a state shift. We pay the premium for the state shift. And obviously like streaming porn is ridiculously prevalent. It's like what, th- uh, seven out of the top 20 is that uh, right, Tom? Online short. Yeah. And yet, porn theaters never took <laughs> off. Is that right, Tom? If I own a computer. Yeah. 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 Didn't and, work for Pee Wee. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, if you think about it, like evolutionary payoffs and benefits, right? There is mm-hmm. no evolutionary reward for, for rubbing one out. Uh, in front of your laptop. Um, you, you know, you don't pass your genes. Oh, the genes don't get passed along, right? Why do we do it? Do, people are not doing it for companionship. They're not doing it even to get laid. They're doing it to create a sense of neurochemical saturation in their body. Mm-hmm. Why and do you they, get so sad like afterwards? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that, that that's the evolutionary bitch slap, which is that we are just, we are just like evolution's amoral. You know, and we try and live relationships that have morality and ethics and consider, but evolution doesn't give a shit who we get it on with. They just care that it happens. So mm-hmm. I think there's a huge decrease in arousal and all the chemicals that are saying, go, 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 done. Thanks very much. And now you face the consequences of your action. Mm. You know, wow, that was heavy. <laughs> I, hit, I hit home. <laughs> so we're already spending all this money trying to get out of our heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the point there is that, you know, because people might read the book, especially if someone was kind of a little bit more conventional conservative, mm-hmm. and they'd be like, what are you guys doing? Are you advocating for all this stuff? This is reckless and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you're like, well, no, 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 look, we are already spending four trillion bucks completely. And most of it is unintentional and destructive and addictive. So we're already doing this. The question is, is can we become more informed about it? Can mm. we become more skillful about it? And right. And can we deploy that urge to much better ends? And so that, that would be our advocacy is like cognitive literacy is the first thing, which is understand how our bodies and our brains affect our minds and our hearts. Hmm. Like how, what's, what's the operating system of my system? And the other is cognitive liberty, which is, you know, understand who's looking to get mind share in your head with or without your permission. Right. And, and mm-hmm. to actually, you know, fiercely protect and defend right, your civil liberties for what goes on between my ears is none of, none of anybody else's business. It shouldn't be. Yeah. It never should be. Why are we so driven to do this? You know, that's a great question. I mean, um, one is, it, th- is, it the, is it the curse of, I guess, herming human consciousness and intelligence? I mean, or do animals also seek <laughs> altered states of consciousness? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, Ron Siegel at UCLA uh, has written extensively about it and goes back as far as saying, you know, birds do it, bees do it, right? Uh, mammals all over the place seek intoxication in spite of the short-term evolutionary um, risk, mm-hmm. meaning I'm twisted, I could get run over, or I could fall out of a tree or whatever. Right? You guys so, address this in the book too, don't you, about all yeah. the different types of plants and stuff that all these animals eat to get the... Yeah, so I mean, on pretty much every continent, uh, mammals and birds um, routinely seek state shift. And you can make a fairly clear case that it is it is the seeking of radical novelty, right, which can then, if it works, like if I come up with a good idea and I then have an adaptation, at, at, you know, an evolutionary advantage, then that's what propagates and gets mm-hmm. rewarded. So he, called, he goes as far as saying it's the fourth evolutionary drive mm-hmm. after wow. food, water, food, and sex. Is that, so, so it's not even why do humans do it? Mm-hmm. Is it our existential issues and do we have to get out of our way? Although, you know, clearly we, we, we experience that way, but it's like, it is hardwired into our system. It's why little kids love to spin around, mm-hmm. right? Hold their breath, hyperventilate, do the, you know, knockout game with like middle school boys, like let me hyperventilate and suck me in the chest, right? You might, <laughs> oh, wait, yeah. like, right? I mean, kids do it. And certainly we do as well. And I think that's the biggest thing is that if we say anything about like, what's the premise of the book is, that we got locked into one channel of consciousness for the last few hundred years and it's killing us. Mm. And that's the one in foreign psychiatric meds. That's the rates of suicide escalating. That's all that stuff. And getting, getting locked on one channel is debilitating. And it's, it's, it's poverty of consciousness. And the ability to change the channel and experience different states of being and awareness relationship to ourself and the world and, and our challenges and what's in front of us, to be able to do that, A, we know, even being able to switch it briefly, one, for a handful of instances, massively heals trauma, right? It lets us set down our load. It lets us revisit patterns and stories in our system, you know, in our psychology, in our physiology and release them permanently. It increases learning and collaboration. So it boosts it, you know, between 300 and 500%, lets us solve hard problems and it lets us connect and collaborate in highly effective ways. So you're like, okay, so if we just get to change that rusted dial from like 21st century normal over to other things from time to time, not all the time, just from time to time, that the benefit to our lives is, is kind of pretty compelling. Let's talk nuts. about that for a second, the, the enhanced learning that, that you can learn faster mm-hmm. uh, and more effectively by utilizing altered states of consciousness mm-hmm. um, effectively. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the science behind that and some examples. If you, yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, God, there's so many. Um, I remember but, reading, I read about the, the, the SEALs. The that SEALs the, learning new languages. Yeah, didn't they yeah. do the float tank uh, yeah. as part of their training? They learned new languages in like six weeks instead of six months or something ridiculous like that? Yeah, exactly that. And so, you know, their original use of float tanks, which if anybody's not familiar with those, are just the pitch black, super salty, buoyant uh, chambers that you can float in. And because it's pitch black and you don't touch the edges, you just kind of lose all your visual cues as to where I end and my environment so it creates an experience of ecstasis, literally an experience of selflessness because I've just shut off some of my senses. Um, and at first they were just using it to help guys de- decompress after coming off duty. Mm. So you've been running night ops, you're in constant fight or flight, hypervigilance. How the hell do you unwind from that mm. and not become an alcoholic? Right. Because I mean, again, I mean, alcohol, like when people come home from work and knock back two shots of whiskey or whatever they do, they are intuitively feeling for I'm wind, I'm wound up. I've probably had caffeine in my system. I've had stress. I've had all these. How do I decompress my system? But Mm -hmm. of course, a lot of our choices, just because we have so few available tools, most of us, most of the time, we pick bad ones or ones that aren't sustainable. So that was their first move for the SEALs was how do we just help guys unwind in a healthy way? Mm -hmm. Then they started adding in, well, what if we can help 
steer and guide their bodies and brains to more optimal states of relaxation and arousal. And that was EEG feedback, HIV feedback, some of those kind of things. Then like, oh, now once we can get them there, is there new data that we can run across their screens and they might be in a more receptive state for plugging it in. And that really was, I mean, that was a, you know, a, a one fourth as long um, timing on patterning and integrating new languages. And, th and that, that happens with meditators, that happens with um, mechanically inducing a flow state, right? With transcranial magnetic stimulation. So you, you know, kind of, you put a magnetic pulse across the prefrontal cortex, the front of your brain, and for about 20 to 40 minutes, you've got a kind of, you know, like a, you know, makes like jumper cables to the brain. It's basically mm -hmm. like a magnetic lobotomy, you know? <laughs> and, and for 20 to 40 minutes, you're, you're in the zone. And like, what can you do there with target acquisition or any skill acquisition? And those numbers are really high. Um, and, you know, so, and then of course, you know, the Fadiman studies with microdosing where they did stuff with Hewlett Packard and Stanford engineers, and they were all working on really complex, hard technical problems. And they had, I think it was 270% uh, incidences of breakthroughs and, you know, patentable, fundable, practical wow. stuff. Wow, because you, because earlier you had mentioned how, you know, animals will seek this out and how it, from an evolutionary standpoint, puts them at risk, right? They can mm -hmm. fall out of a tree, they can <laughs> be out of it and get hunted or killed. But it seems like there is an evolutionary potential or a reason for this even existing, for us even seeking this. And it may be just to spark more creativity, maybe to seek out new new things, look what's beyond the horizon. Mm -hmm. Would you say that that would be... Yeah, I mean, I, clearly it seems observable, like... You know, that, yeah, okay. novelty. I mean, the seeking of novelty and combinations that are then useful. I think, I mean, you could make a case that that is pretty much how most cultural innovations have happened across time. Mm -hmm. Now, I feel can like... We, oh, can we ahead. talk about uh, the Borg for a minute? Like, uh, are we... Should we fully integrate or should we avoid it at all costs? Like, what, what's your opinion going forward with, like, artificial yeah, intelligence? Yeah, do we really want hive mind? Mm, yeah. Mm. <laughs> I, you know, funnily enough, I'm not a wild fan of singularity kind of thinking and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm a... I'm a sort of like nostalgic traditionalist. Like I want to like these bodies, you know, this lifetime, this planet. Um, and because, you know, as much as anything else, like that's a one percenter play. Yeah. Even if Elon figures out like colonies to Mars and like who the hell gets to go, you know, <laughs> not everybody, you know, so. How comfortable is it going to be? Yeah, exactly. Be so, so I, I feel, I feel strongly compelled and the same with like singularity and uploading consciousness and, you know, all that kind of stuff. You're like, and then what, right? I mean, we are only going to, it's like, it's like, you, it's like leaving the bathroom, you know, like a public bathroom with like toilet paper stuck to your shoe, you know, like the shit travels with you as far as you go. <laughs> and, and I feel like any of our efforts are only going to be as good as the consciousness we hold and the relationships we have to those acts as we enact them you know i mean and that's that's you know there's so many cautionary tales in mythology or edgar Allan poe or whatever like be careful what you wish for you know and like right. that one just to me seems super duper that way um the fact that elon is now talking about neural nets and you know like uh, intelligence augmentation for the humans to be able to keep pace against ai um that to me is all super interesting and curious but just who the hell knows um right. and i would still say that humans in these meat suits with our lives, with our relationships. I mean, we're still gonna be biologically reproducing. We still have children, we still have partners, we still have you know, the desire to choose and make art or, or life. We still have to figure this stuff out. So mm -hmm. I think that in order, regardless of what 
kink or turn the technological landscape shows up in the next decades, a few decades, like we are going to need to upgrade our nervous systems. We're going to need to upgrade our consciousness and we're going to need to be able to be rooted enough in three dimensions that we can comfortably mm. hold and maintain um, life experience and information feeds from multiple dimensions without losing our tits. And so like to me, that's where you come all the way full circle into radical and body cognition. Like let's become quantum acrobats. Like let's become so dialed, so yeah. Bruce Lee, so, right, so on the game that yeah, we can hold our center dynamically in a world that is massively more complex. Well, it feels like we're, we're playing a lot of catch up with that, right? We're just getting, mm-hmm. we're just understanding our body at a deeper level, but it's just sort of happening. Meanwhile, like technology is just exploding. So mm-hmm. yeah, it just feels like, I mean, how long do you think till we will, we will get into that mindset where like we're, we care just about, uh, you know, hacking the human body as we do about like improving technology yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, the, the weird thing is it's all happening. On the one hand, you've got, you know, 73% of American men are obese and something like 34% of American children are, which is just absurd and tragic, especially considering how, like, food shortages are elsewhere in the world. We, pay, mm-hmm. we spend more on diet products for our fucking pets yeah. than we invest in, right, crazy. in third world, and, you know, food relief, right? So on the one hand, we're super crazy disembodied. You know, and everyone's walking around hunched over looking at their screens and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And on the other hand, you have things like CrossFit and Spartan and Tough Mudder. And you have this rise of like, you know, peak embodiment. And you've got more folks that are training harder, right, in those spaces than mm-hmm. wherever. Without as much smarts in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. So, so yeah. you know, I, I think, I mean, we're just seeing an acceleration in novelty in all those, in all those lines. You know, including tech and, and culture. Physical. Well, I love when we get a mind like you in the room. So, we, I mean, we should be taking vitamins while we talk like this. Because yeah, I like to, I love to speculate on, like, uh-huh. where, what do you think is going to be, like, the mi- most mind-blowing uh, direction we go, whether it be technology or talking about flow state? What do you see in the next 10 to 20 years that I think people are going to trip out on? Uh, I mean, uh, like, the actual honest answer would be if more people... If more people start actually getting into radically non-altered states and start perceiving a consistent pattern on the other side of them. Mm -hmm. So if you really like, like we are in, we are in a sort of ethnocentric like backlash right now, right? There was, there was a potential move to like, we're all one and everybody's rights are equal, including the most, you know, the, the, the most long tail minority group right? Transgender folks or something, this like mm-hmm. fraction of a percent of a population, but like their rights became a litmus test, right? For and, and that also became blowback for people to say, those aren't my people, right? This has gone too far. I want to retrench back into a tribal identity where I feel strong and known and, and valued, right? So what gets us beyond an ethnocentric worldview? How do we get to global centric, right? Which you can make a case is kind of needed right now because mm-hmm. all the complex problems that don't stop at people's borders anymore, Right. So it doesn't matter how big you build the Great Wall of China, like smog goes over it. Right. (laughs) Um, So so you can make and you can make a developmental case that in order to stabilize a level of cultural awareness, like ethnocentric, you have to know, like, I can't define my tribe until I've defined who's not my tribe. So I have to go beyond my ethnocentric perspective to define an other in order to reaffirm who we are. So how do we get to global centric? You'd have to go beyond the identity of the globe. So how do we get to, how do we glimpse something beyond this planet? You've got two choices. You know, you can either hop on a spaceship like all those, right, all the early astronauts did and look back at the little blue marble and have that transcendent experience of like, holy shit, we really are all one. Right, and come back to Earth and start an institute or do a speaking circuit, right? <laughs> or we all get, you know, get tickets to Virgin Galactic, right? Or we can do it with 
inner exploration. So you can have an ecstasis experience that is no, we're no longer astronauts, we become psychonauts. And by moving beyond the globe, and sounds like a cool band. Yeah, exactly. That, that <laughs> maybe, right? Maybe that could happen. And and so you know, we shall see what unfolds in the next couple of decades. But the move to a truly global centric awareness that we act on and act from, based on an understanding that we are not the only game in town, mm-hmm. could be the next. You think unlocking. fear will stop us from getting there? You think? What do you think? Oof. I mean, I don't know. I, and honestly, like, I don't know. Like, for instance, if, there, if, we, like, if the universal game is not anthropocentric and isn't geocentric, which I'd say any dabblers in high-octane psychedelics would affirm as a hell yes, right? So it's not all about us, right? It's not all about this planet exclusively. So you're like, maybe that, maybe that consciousness or sentience or, or agency is not the sole uh, property and, and claim of little hairless apes. Mm-hmm. Right, you're like okay, you know, like that. That is a mind fuck. Um, but once it does, we take ourselves and our petty divisions a lot less seriously. Yeah. See, I, I see. I have a lot of hope uh, because I look at the world, and the world continues to get smaller as more and more people get connected. And I think what we see with a lot of these, you know, tribal type movements is is a backlash but it it, but you can't stop it you Mm -hmm. know more people are connected than ever more people are sharing ideas than ever Mm -hmm. anybody can post a video on youtube and it can go viral anybody Mm -hmm. for pennies um whereas before you needed you know connections Mm -hmm. and lots of money to share ideas um i think it's it's moving in a direction that is good but like any major shift in you know you know i guess collective human consciousness it's it's going to have we're going to be hitting some bumps. I mean the renaissance we all, you know, look back at the renaissance as this great, you know, transformative time, but it was riddled with murders and, Ooh, yeah. and killings and throwing people in jail and burning books and, you know, uh killing people for, you know, talking about science and I think we see that every single time, but right now mm-hmm. it's happening faster mm-hmm. and bigger than anything that's ever happened in, in pre- I mean, I talk about the internet all the time. I mean, uh, anybody now has access to all the information mm-hmm. that they want. Yeah, that's never happened before. Uh, what is that going to look like moving forward? I don't know. We, you talked about running for president earlier when you were joking. You said, "Oh, I can't say anything on here because what if I, you know, run for president in the future?" But I'm going to love. <laughs> they already I, know. I cannot <laughs> wait to see presidential elections in 30 years. I know. Like, are, everyone's going to have shit on everybody. <laughs> like, every you're going to have, have elementary re- school. You're a dick. Yeah, <laughs> it's all recorded. You're so. going to have his Instagram post for since maybe he was 12. Maybe yeah. that's when we'll all get along when we can all see each other's porn searches and yeah. we can all see all the fucked up everybody. Like, wow, else. this guy's weird like me. We're all, right. all the same. So. Yeah. Seriously, dude, Japanese schoolgirls. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So, what is hey, your what is your hope for the future of these these currently illicit substances that you've referenced, like psilocybin, lysergic acid, diethylamide, uh, you know, ayahuasca. A lot of people talk about. What is your wait a second what before you hope? take before you take them there? Actually, I want I want you actually to explain on on a neurological level, if you can, for me, what is really the difference of like you know the like between shrooms, MDM, and then like LSD. Like really, what's happening different with each one of those? I tried to explain mm-hmm. it to someone. I I just fucked it up completely. So mm. I couldn't wait to get someone like you on here that could probably explain that a little bit better than me. 
Sure. Well, I'm mean, happy to do that. And then we'll do a little PSA. Okay. On, 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 <laughs> right. on, on hacking your buzz. Um, so, I mean, fundamentally, uh, psilocybin and LSD are, as we talked about, interact with the serotonin system predominantly. So that's where you get all the interesting effects that come from those substances. Um, MDMA will create, it's, it's an amphetamine base. So it's a totally, it's not a tryptamine, it's an amphetamine. So it's a different class of compounds altogether. So um, psilocybin, LSD, tryptamine-based molecules, mm-hmm. very, very similar. Mm-hmm. MDMA, totally different. Totally different. Mm-hmm. And so, most and if you do them all, you know, you can tell. Yeah, and, and honestly, <laughs> I mean, I mean yeah, and, yeah. and ironically, people will say, oh, go do Molly, right? It's fun, it's friendly, it's whatever. But I mean, as, as a compound, it's one of the hottest things to put in your body. You know, it's an amphetamine, bottom line. Um, I've heard the hangover's horrible. Well, I mean, okay, so interestingly, there was a Harvard study that finally was able to separate what is the, because people talk about like suicide Wednesdays or whatever mm-hmm. after, after taking MDMA. Um, but A, most of that's, you know, impure street versions. So like Vice did a study down in South Beach and, and sampled Molly from the top 10 bumping as clubs and only 17% of them contained any MDMA oh, at wow. all, at all. <laughs> wow. not, not even 100% pure, just any. Is that surprising? Right. Yeah. So, so most of what people are taking is in name only. Um, but then they also realized, oh, they, the funny thing was, is they, this Harvard study found a bunch of Mormon raver kids who didn't do anything else but pop molly. So they weren't boozing. They weren't getting high. They weren't doing any because they were straight edge Mormon kids ish. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? It doesn't yeah. say don't do molly in the Bible. Exactly. <laughs> well, no, a girl. Dude, I mean, the, wow. the funny thing, Mormon tea, if you guys have ever been in the desert and seen like that plant and it was called Mormon tea because when the settlers came across, they would chop it up and brew it. It's fucking ephedra. It's the, oh, it's no the, it is wow. the base ingredient for crystal meth and Mormon tea was fine because meth not coffee (laughs) right exactly do meth tea kids because baby Jesus said it's all right actually he hasn't put it on the list yet Uh, so we're good for a while Um, so so MDMA will basically trigger norepinephrine which is not not surprisingly given it's an amphetamine it's a stimulant and Mm -hmm. it turns me on it it releases some dopamine just good old straight up like this feels good and reward Um, and then the real the real thing it does is it um, creates a dump of serotonin in your system as well but it's it's a dump of it it's not interacting with my receptor sites so it's your own natural serotonin just going yes squirting out now here's the thing so most people and that's what the kind of warm ooey gooey sense of safety and trust and I just can't help but want to tell you how much I really appreciate you and this other thing Great, you, how great yeah. of a dancer you feel you are. Sorry, Sal's always hugging me. I, I just want to thank you for buying us these tickets to this show because it's just so amazing <laughs> that we're here right now with together. No, that that's serotonin, and so so many people want to chase the tail of that dragon. So come one o'clock at night, two o'clock at night, they're like, hey. You want to do more because mm-hmm. they like they they like that thing that they just felt and they want to go chase it. But what happened is like you've just released all the serotonin in your brain. That was it taking more of it now you're just into the now you're just into the amphetamine side of it and that's when people start sucking their cheeks and chewing their teeth and all that kind of stuff because too much dopamine will give you jaw lock and it will it will overclock your processor so the reality is is like you know yes you can potentially take 5-htp and some other precursors of serotonin to boost your serotonin stores ahead of time or in recovery afterwards but the bottom line is like once you've had that spike you're chasing the tail of a train that already left the station Mm, interesting yeah that was the PSA kids (laughs) (laughs) and now uh, uh, LSD and psilocybin how are those two different and both I guess chemical and and maybe in perceived experience yeah I mean I mean you know because they're very similar when you look at them on paper they're I mean what what separates the two molecules it's like one yeah I mean I mean as as far as the true molecular breakdown Mm -hmm. um, they are they are similar a number of people will tell you 
oh, you know, acid, no way. I only had a bad trip on acid, but mushrooms are so friendly. I've right, never had right. good trips on mushrooms. And I think they're just full of shit. You know, <laughs> it's, the, it's the same when people talk about, oh, I don't like weed because it makes me paranoid. It's like, no, no, you got some shit to think about. You just would rather not. You know? <laughs> like, That's like, all going on already. Right, <laughs> unless you have some like crazy high-octane sativa where you know don't know whether it's shit or go blind. So like, so the reality is, is that any of the, the dosage matters. And so mushrooms can be friendly and you can hang out in the trees and go walk on the beach and feel connected to Mother Earth and everything else. Or you can take a fuck ton of them and suddenly you're like in the galactic spaceships wondering what the hell, you know, what you took a left turn in Albuquerque. So like, you know, in the same with LSD, you can do microdosing, which is purely sort of therapeutic to museum dose to heroic. So my sense is most people confuse urban legends with their own experiences. They project onto the substances they're taking and don't claim responsibility for their own consciousness. Mm. And they mistake that the wildly differing experiences you can have um, based on different dosages mm. and those step functions. Interesting. Great way to ask that. Yeah, that makes it, uh, that clears up quite a bit because you do hear people say, oh, I like, I like shrooms, but I don't do mm-hmm. acid or no, yeah. acid's my favorite and I don't like to do mm-hmm. mushrooms that much. Is there any research on, you know, somebody that would uh, microdose on a regular basis? Like, is there uh, side effects to that? What do you if- downregulate receptors by doing that on a regular basis? Or? Yeah, that, that's all. I mean, that's, those are the great questions that we're literally just now getting enough <laughs> of sample sizes and longitudinal studies to even begin mm. looking at and answering. And, and that's, you know, to the credit of, neuropsychologists and the other researchers who always get asked about all this stuff because it's just kind of everywhere in the mainstream media in the Mm -hmm. last few years. Um, They're always like, look, seems encouraging, seems interesting. We're not sure. And you're clearly, I mean, anything that's going to give you a powerful benefit, is there a Rob Peter Pay Paul element? I mean, I know, you know, Tim Ferriss probably two, three years ago was talking about, you know, uh, TDCS, like, you know, direct current stimulation in his brain. And is, are there trade-offs? You know, you might zap your brain, get a boost in something, but does it come out of something else mm-hmm. nearby? And are we willing to make those trade-offs? I mean, I think, you know, at the end of it all, I think biohacking in general is a fool's errand and it's going to implode out of the weight of its own self-obsession mm. um, in the mm. next couple of years. Because yeah. uh, the only people that are really doing it and propagating it are the people selling you overpriced bottles of shit to pop. Mm. And everything else is like, if you take a look at um, like that whole thing, nootropics and stacking and blah, 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 which just everybody's just whacking themselves silly with these days. You're like, there's a, you know, the placebo effect is between 30 and 40%, right? And Prozac, um, so it's just sugar pill, right? 30 or 40% efficacy. And and to put that in in comparison, Prozac clocks in in mid 40s. So Prozac is single digits better than sugar water, right? And as a multi-billion dollar blockbuster drug with tons of side effects, tons of side effects. So you could just take a sugar pill, get none of the side effects, none of the costs and be, you know, 70, 80% almost as good. (laughs) So, so then you're like, okay, so now what is meaningfully better than placebo that definitely delivers a, a, a result? And my sense is that it doesn't, you don't even get into the lowest level contenders until you're at something that requires a doctor's prescription or doctor's oversight, like ProVigil, mm. right? And then from there, the things that hand down change your consciousness, presumably for the better in useful ways, are Schedule One or Schedule Two substances. So like between placebo and doctor's script and Schedule One, Schedule Two, that's the entire bandwidth of the whole biohacking neurotropic oh, wow. world and industry. And it's all just expensive pee. <laughs> you know, so that so what's what's your take then Keep on it all real. this? There, I mean, that, there is definitely a major, 
you know, nootropic kick mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. So it's... Yeah, and it's just so goddamn simple. It's the whole Michael Pollan, like eat real food, mostly plants, mm. not too much. Like invest in your nutrients, like having a balanced nutrient and mineral and electrolyte and amino acids stacking our bodies, useful, of course. And there's no substitute for high quality whole food to get us there, period. Mm. You know, and, and then also, I mean, just think about biohacking. Like, I mean, this is, this is where I have an ethical issue with it, which is like, how much are people, how much are in people's medicine cabinets or kitchen cabinets and how many dollars are they consuming every day to optimize or become bulletproof or, or right, or hack their game. Mm. And you're like, how many starving children could you feed every single month and just eat fruits and vegetables and clean lean meats and call it good? Right. So like at what point have we optimized ourselves up our own assholes, right? <laughs> Versus I I know enough, I am enough, I can do enough to like take next steps. Well, either that I'm or the other way, my bulletproof the, MCT. <laughs> yeah. Well the, the, well, the other thing you see is I feel like it's, it's the, such a small rock and people are missing all the yeah. big rocks, right? You're, you're sleeping like shit. Yes. You're drinking alcohol. You're 40 pounds overweight, but yeah. you're taking nootropics and you've got fucking MCT oil. You know? Yeah, like, I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, we, we uh, guide uh, mountaineering courses in Nepal and Tibet. Like I drank a shit pile of smoky, nasty ass yak butter tea. I didn't come home and tell and sell that story about it oh, being the secret, the secret to fucking human performance. Cause you know, and it, it, like our son, when we, we lived in Colorado when our son was born at 10,000 feet, he, he and my wife participated in a high altitude natal study and they used Tibet and they used Chile as their, as their two examples. And what they found was like, you know, this is multi-generational epigenetic adaptation, much greater hemoglobin, red blood cell, oxygenation, all these, and not the fucking yak butter and the goddamn tea. <laughs> now, come on. But now, why is Bulletproof apeshit? Like those conferences are so fucking funny. You get all these like yoked crossfitters and all these silicon titty peroxide blonde girls at their yeah. side and they're all so stoked because it's like people gave us permission to like consume insane amounts of caffeine and fat. Oh, no it's so self-serving wow it's, it's like the one taste community it's like you know like 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 all about orgasmic meditation and what do you have you have undersex 30 to 40 something women who now have permission to get laid and not be called slutty and you have like milk toast librarian dudes on the back end of a divorce who had who had no sexual social skills since they were high school and they have a permission <laughs> to ask a woman to drop their trials and fiddle their clits without getting bitch slapped you're like that is not a healthy community who can self-police them you know, fuck the, yeah the, the, the uh, culture, right? uh, well like anything oh. We, beautiful with like anything we take a little bit of truth and we turn it into this huge yeah. market where we're yes. just going to sell you all kinds of shit all well that said uh how annoyed or maybe you, you you know this is like flattering that like flow is like the next buzz term right oh, it's awful yeah I was going to say, that must be <laughs> yeah. a little bit like, oh, no. <laughs> no, honestly, I mean, I never use the goddamn word in my own life. I noticed I mean, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, I noticed that. Yeah. yeah. We, you know, first rule of flow club, you know, it's just, <laughs> yeah. if, we're, if we're there. Because you could say that, like, yeah. this is flow. I'm going to get into flow, you know, oh. playing music. I'm going to get into flow, reading this book, you know. like I have to say that's the most refreshing thing, actually, to talking to you right great, now. Yeah. Is that's the, that, I think that's the fear when we, we interview someone like, like yourself is like, you know, is he going to be like, flow this, flow that, flow this, oh, every other word. You haven't even fucking used it one time, which I really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, because it's-, yeah, it's like, bottom line, man, is if we're in it, let's just shut the fuck up in a little more. And if we're not, talking about it isn't going to change the game. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's exactly. Oh, beautiful. Oh, my yeah. God. So tell me how you actually, how did you get connected with uh, Stephen? How did you guys get connected? How did that whole play out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was mutual friends. And we were both, we were both interested in this experience. Stephen was coming kind of from, the neuroscience side, and I was coming from the practice and application. So for me, I'd always just gone seeking, you know, 
mountains, mountains, music, mushrooms, like whatever it was, like I was just interested in moments where I felt like, fuck yes, this is big enough and good enough that I don't have to second guess it or critique it. So I was always looking for those experiences that just shut up my inner critic, you know, and then, and then translated that into like leadership development, professional training, all that kind of stuff. So that was the path I'd been following. So together it was an interesting, like here's an explanatory mechanism of how this stuff works. Yeah. And then here's badass experiences that we can go do that get us there without having to talk about it. Now I've always, this is the first time I've actually had a chance to talk to both authors of a single book. What uh -huh. is, how does that work? Yeah, what's the dynamic how does, yeah, how between does you guys? Like, it's not like you both sit down and go, I'm going to write that sentence and you write yeah, this yeah. sentence. I mean, like, how does that yeah. play you out? You cover this chapter. Yeah. I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. The... I mean, my, my intention, because I, I had helped Stephen quite a bit with Rise of Superman. And, mm -hmm. and when we started getting into this book, I'm like, dude, we're okay. We're not going to do it that way again. <laughs> so here's the deal. Let's create, and, and I'm not a like rigid type A planner guy, mm -hmm. but I was like, we need to architect this thing because it's a long, complex, lot of moving parts. You got to, you got to yeah, have blueprints. Somebody has you know. to be that guy. Exactly. And and Stephen was hilarious. I mean, he would literally like a he refused to work on Google Docs, so we didn't have real time document <laughs> management. That, so we you were mailing. School, huh? yeah, yeah, we were mailing. I mean, we have literally thousands of emails of back and forth versions of Microsoft Word. Then he would conveniently forget and make changes. He was sabotaging. He would tell me. He gleefully, someone, <laughs> someone guiltily told me after he's like, "Hey, you know what? I mean, he he he. What I was doing was like deliberately like not." following your stuff and deleting stuff just to see and I was like I know you were you son of a bitch I wanted to throttle you through the fucking phone so, so uh, between having an editor that just did not get it yeah. at all um, to collaborating and seeing what worked what didn't um, it was it was full contact sparring and we were both deeply dedicated to the book. So like the end result ended up being that I think we were both hypersensitive to each other's excesses mm -hmm. as, a write, as writers. Mm -hmm. So we, would, we were so impatient or intolerant with anything that felt like a flourish or self-indulgent that I hope, you know, we, hopefully we wrung most of that out of the book. Yeah. And then by the end, it was like, okay, and we could also give each other a hat tip when we got it right. And so that was a really healthy dynamic tension. And I think, I think the book is probably tighter and more focused and more accessible to more people because we put each other through that ring. It takes a lot of humility to do that. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> it takes a lot of humility to do that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and last year, I mean, I was literally, I was in the airport on my final connecting flight to Burning Man, sending him the final manuscript. And I'm like, Ooh. here you go, dude. Like, flag stuff don't fix stuff I'm only gone for three days I will be back out don't fuck with it and of course he fucked with it so, so I came back and it was like this back and forth to the deadline it was comedy oh my god yeah. that's fucking awesome makes what, it more dynamic why were you guys so passionate to, to write that what was your drive to do that I'll go through all that for yeah us. I mean, yeah, it was it was absolutely like like bleed and die on this hill, regardless. Like that, there was no way this book could not uh, get through. So for me, it was it was twenty years of living life, going to grad school, learning, like following this thread. Like came across this kind of world in college, and it was everything from you know windsurfing and mountain biking to psychedelics and dead and early fish shows. Like like what's up? in the mm -hmm. big wide world of living large and then spent my entire academic career looking for the origins and roots because it felt like what is this lineage like this is a lie this is a thing and it's showing up in this time and place in american culture etc with with all these trails and what what are all the roots of this stuff so that had been 20 years of my life i mean back to you know the ancient greeks and kaikion and the story of alcibiades like all this stuff like whoa this feels like a hidden crazy lineage that weaves in and out of time and space and jumps continents and all these kind of things but it's alive and who are all who are all the kind of the shoulders 
rows of giants that we're standing on. So I wanted to communicate that story and at the same time communicate the, the what feels like a wild uptick in what's going on now. Because, I mean, it was kind of bumping along through the 60s and 70s and, you know, and 80s. It went kind of underground and, you know, that kind of stuff. But, like, what's happening now feels urgent and it feels like um, if enough people get this information, then we have a shot at the open source revolution we, we talk about. Because otherwise it'll just get clipped like it always has. Why do you think there's an uptick now? I mean, you know, at least the thesis we make in the book is that there's an intersection of psychology, technology, pharmacology, and neurobiology, and that each of those disciplines is now accelerated to a point and provide enough open access. It's basically like demystifying stuff. It's providing data and repeatable experiments. It's cutting out the middlemen, and it's making it more safer and scalable. And as a result of that intersection, that's the kind of genie out of the bottle moment. And will, you know, will the gatekeepers, will the state, will the church, right? Will, will all those entities in whatever form they take place these days, will they show up and try and control, modulate, shut it down? Well, hell yeah. I mean, you've got Jeff Sessions, mm-hmm. right? You know, willfully bending all the evidence about the opioid epidemic and saying that, you know, we need to clamp down on marijuana because it sends a wrong message. And you're like, in every state where like you've got medical access, you've got a decrease in car accidents, decrease in fatalities, decrease in overdoses, because people just have least one more slightly less all or nothing tool to manage mm-hmm. pain mm-hmm. you know and so you were, you're still getting like 1980s era moralizing right in, in the face of evidence and so that's a backlash we didn't i mean we pretty much we had finished the book before november so what we're seeing in the last six months is a weird throwback it's not i always think of it it's like it's like when Gandalf is like in the mines of Moria and he like defeats that nasty ass Balrog, huge mm-hmm. monster, and he done it. Like, you yes. shall not pass. Or he I kicks ass. And then as the thing falls down in the last minute, that tail whips up, down. right? Whips up, snaps him around the ankle and drags, drags him into the abyss. And that kind of feels what the last six months is like. is like a sociocultural oh, moment. You're like, this is the last gasp of just <laughs> frustrated old male, twisted patriarchy, you know, just in the death heaves. And meanwhile, there's, a, there's the party at the end of time. And, you know, everybody else is like showing up for the for the get on yeah I, I think the timing is right i think uh good luck there if they try to reverse any of these current laws that we have it's like trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube mm-hmm. it's not going to happen and uh the, the it's like the public opinion is fun it's fundamentally different than it was even when i was a kid which you know wasn't too long ago right uh I think, you know, the majority of Americans approve of marijuana being legalized uh, recreationally, definitely medicinally. Their attitudes towards drugs in general, or at least the war on drugs, has changed quite a bit. And so you've got, you know, academia now uh, talking about, you know, using these substances for what they're good for. You've got now the general public saying, hey, the war on drugs is been an absolute failure and has caused nothing but uh, death and destruction and it's all intersecting and and i think i think we're going to see more changes plus we have the internet now let's be honest Mm -hmm. like uh communication happens so fast that movements that used to take decades happen in a matter of uh you know five years i mean Mm -hmm. i remember when uh you know barack obama ran for president in 2008 the first time he ran on a platform going against gay marriage for example Mm -hmm. well two years later uh, if you were a politician running against gay marriage, you couldn't get elected. And even today, you can't do that. Uh, marijuana uh, legalization wasn't supported by a majority of people not that long ago. Now it is. It seems to be happening faster and faster and faster. Mm. What, are your, uh, what are your hopes for um, how psychedelics can be used um, 
you know, uh, do you hope it can become legalized? Maybe like Schedule Three, Schedule Two, mm-hmm. used by by physicians and doctors. Do you hope it's even more unregulated? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I honestly don't burn a lot of calories in that direction. Um, I'm glad people do. Mm-hmm. Um, my sense would be, at a minimum, available in a physician or psychiatrist toolkit instead of a lot of the blunt instruments that get deployed now. So for sure, I mean, if, if there were uh, psychedelic and empathogenesis, and, and, and the FDA is moving towards that. They're moving towards approval of MDMA for depression, anxiety, and uh, I'm, I'm presuming following through and green lighting the trauma uh, mm-hmm. practice as well. So that would be, that's huge. Um, the ability to take things out of like the Hopkins study with psilocybin and, and end of life patients and smoking cessation. Okay, smoking cessation, well, cool. Um, that would be <clears throat> interesting. That kills a lot of people. Um, and obviously, end-of-life studies for the ability to have, you know, what was it, um, 30% of the people who took three grams of psilocybin in the Hopkins study facing terminal cancer reported as the most meaningful experience of their lives. And, four, and, and, and the rest of the group said it was in the top five, no question. And, those, and that perspective persisted for months and years afterwards. So you're like, wow, if you, if there's just three grams of a dried substance that can provide you the most the most meaningful experience of your life, and you haven't had that, then presumably you would want that. Mm-hmm. So the ability, I think, within controlled, licensed, supportive context um, for more of this is true. And then also, who are we kidding, right? I mean, m- medical marijuana in California basically just saturated the entire state with all forms of you know gray market access. And as would those kinds of situations as well, even if it's just easy script writing docs, mm-hmm. you know, you would end up with a very different social structure as far as access and, and permission. Yeah, that's uh, that's my hope. <clears throat> uh, yeah, when I looked at, cause I had a family member who was uh, terminal and who passed away not too long ago. And to see someone in that state to actually experience it, um, it's it, it, from my point of view, it's criminal that you don't allow them access to anything that can alleviate um, some of that that pain and that terror mm-hmm. of knowing that they're going to be mm-hmm. that they're going to die any moment. Mm-hmm. And when I read that study and saw that uh, it alleviated a lot of the depression and fear that these people had, I thought to mm-hmm. myself, like, I can't believe yeah. that we've made it almost we've made it difficult to even study, let alone somebody who's already going to die. Mm-hmm. Why not just let them try it and use it? I mean, they're already terminal. It's a, it's I believe it's a, absolutely a criminal. Do you see um, athletes using these substances to improve physical performance? We're talking a lot about mental performance. Sure. But what about like a fighter or uh, you know mm-hmm. someone working out, you know, lifting weights or, or extreme sports? Extreme sports. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a huge underground scene in extreme, in extreme like mountain culture of psychedelics and rad shit in the mountains. So, <laughs> I think the people, people drawn yeah, to mountain kind of sports. Yeah. 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 Some people might say they're just drawn to doing crazy shit. But. Yes, but, but I mean, the idea is, I mean, you know, back in the 80s, it would be like, let's go bump some lines in a plane and go jump out of the, you know, jump out and go skydiving. Oh, that was, that, that was like my friend's brother in Miami. You know, I was like, you guys are crazy bastards. But like the idea of like, <laughs> can we be in big, complex, gorgeous, awe-inspiring natural environments? And do we have enough core baseline skills to not be doing something stupid? which mm-hmm. is key prerequisite um, and <laughs> yeah. good pattern recognition, good habits, good systems, all those kind of things. And now are we going to augment with psychedelics, not to the point of like reducing my motor function and decision-making, but to enhance it. Um, that is a time tested thing from Yosemite camp four, you know, to, to Maui, to Telluride and Jackson. Um, and it's 
seven shades of fucking awesome. So, you know, I mean, like anything you can do, right? High can do better, you know? <laughs> Somebody has Can we make a shirt? shirt? Yeah. Can we make that shirt, please? That. Write that down, Doug. That's definitely anything a mind pump shirt. It's like a children's novel. <laughs> Actually, speaking of children, uh, Jamie, you have children, right? Yeah. Uh, with a, what are the ages? 15 and 17. Okay, so how do you... How do you talk about this stuff to kids? Because I know we have listeners that are probably very interested in all this and then also have children and then wondering, how do I talk about this or communicate this to them? And they're probably at good ages to talk about this. Mm-hmm. How do you communicate that? Yeah. I mean, our son is, I think, he's much more um, kind of at that stage and phase. Mm-hmm. Um, our daughter's like, you will not take me to Burning Man. I will run away. I am not <laughs> going. And our son's like, yeah, when's it on? Do I get to miss school? Bonus. You know? um, so, I mean, what we try and say is, is like, you know, back to the cognitive literacy thing. Like, understand what makes you tick. You know, we understand your sexuality, understand your mood, sw- mood swings and cycles, understand what options and choices you have available to you to shift your state um, and do it responsibly. Do it in context, do it in service, not like out to like slam down 40s in the parking lot of a shopping mall. You know, like, like yeah. if you're going to do it, um, contextualize it. Um, and, you know, certainly an advocacy would make it sacralize it, like make it meaningful, you know, and make it respectful. Um, and and integrate these things. These are part of life. Like we do need to talk about religion. We do need to talk about addiction. We do need to talk about depression. I was just going to say, are these like prerequisites that you would go over? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And f- fundamentally, just literacy. Like I mean, and we, we, we're having him take uh, a wilderness EMT course this summer when he turns eighteen. So like, understand the mechanics of like how do our bodies work and how to fix people. Because you know, like you're going to need this whether you're guiding or whether you're doing what else. And like, like be responsible. Like be responsible and learn, learn the prereqs. I fully agree with that approach because mm-hmm. if you, when they do studies on uh, binge drinking, for example, alcohol, they find that cultures that incorporate alcohol as part of the meal mm-hmm. and where the child, uh, you know, a 13 or 14 year old can have a little sip and it's not a big deal. They're not treating it like it's this, mm-hmm. you know, taboo uh, uh, substance. Binge drinking is far, far lower uh, as a percentage in those cultures than in cultures like this one where we demonize, we tend to demonize things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you see kids that go try it for the first time and it's like, once you cross that, cross that line, now I'm going to go crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess the same way you would talk about sex or anything else, Well, especially right? when you've been told as a kid your whole life that, oh, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. And then the first time you try it as a kid, you're like, shit, this is not bad. <laughs> yeah, my, my, my ears <laughs> didn't fall off. Yeah, right. This is it? actually really fun. Or I, I didn't really grow hair on my palms. Yeah, what are you talking about? That's why, right? That's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, yourself. so what's next on the on the horizon? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, following the the wild ride of, of this book and it and landing in the world and lots of kind of feedback coming back, what we're what we're rolling out next is the flagship flow dojo. So embodied cognitive training centers. So series of geodesic domes that are equal parts X Games meets Cirque du Soleil meets Burning Fuck Man with a quantified self. So Hold like, on a second. Dude, are we invited? Keep going. What? This is yeah. great. So so like fundamentally just transformation chambers. So like by day, it's all just dynamic play and oh. physical training. And by night, turns like function one sound system, like full on projection mapping, like mothership nightclub Whoa, throwdown like awesome. hot tub sensory deprivation integration tanks like hypervitality bar with like omaromatherapy oxygen hookahs and like kava and peppers and chocolate like all things that like stimulate you and then like bungees foam pits balance boards slack lines you know everything for eye hand eye body eye foot coordination just like train up superhumans and so that when you have these next peak experiences you're not spilling out of your cup you've upgraded your nervous system you've upgraded your fuses and right and your wiring Whoa. so you can you can juice it and then hold it 
and not blow out the top. Man, so like that's, that's amazing. And then we, you know, and then with that, um, that'll be likely the end of July in, in Utah. We're going to be doing a pop-up version of that. We're also doing an angel raise right now to actually be doing the long-term permanent one. And then we do um, deep dive expeditions. So down in the Utah canyons for six days with ultralight packs and you go through a level of human consciousness every, every single day. So like you make your way up the spiral of human consciousness with like a Harvard psychological assessment or like saltwater fly fishing and kite surfing with pro skiers or pro athletes, learning neuroscience, learning flow, <clears throat> and then going and doing it. So it's, it's, it's an amazingly cool, fun community of people that come to play with this stuff. Are you looking to make any of these places like permanent instead of the pop-up? Yes. So we actually have some good friends that have just bought 300 acres of land in Big Sur. And oh, cool. Be, That's pretty close. Yeah, we're going to be building like a completely rad, <clears throat> super high-end um, training facility for Fortune 100 execs. So like helicoptering them in from the valley, coming in rocking their world wow. there. so bad and, it's in our yeah. backyard yeah and summit and uh summit um powder mountain in utah which is where we'd be looking to do like our permanent flagship wow wow what's uh, the way what's the projected date on this to be finished well we're going to do an event so fundamentally a week-long pop-up event there end of july beginning of august this year and then we want to be funding and building out the permanent version there and within the you know within the following year hmm. yeah Oh, that's exciting. Any more books? Yeah, the next one's going to be called Recapture the Rapture, End oh, of Times oh, for Stellar yeah. Minds. Oh, oh, hell yeah. That's a great, Very clever. Hell yeah. Are you collaborating or by yourself? That one's going to be solo. Yep. Excellent. I mean, the, right. the collaboration is really with my wife. She's my life partner and where most of this stuff's coming from, so... Would you, are you, would you mind going into a little bit of it or you want to keep it? No, no, happy to. I mean, most people's complaint about Stealing Fire was, I thought this was going to be a how-to. Like in the last chapter is very much like the beginnings of the how-to. But, yeah, getting in the hedonic calendar and things yeah, like that. All that stuff. So it would be unpacking that. I mean, it would, A, it would be literally like the original premise of that title is, why is it that all the craziest fuckers on the planet are like hogging the mic about how the mm. end of days goes down? Mm-hmm. Right, like, like there's all these good people that are having legit experiences, want to help, want to solve, want to want to do stuff, and then you've just got wingnut fundamentalists of every stripe, right, who have hijacked the notion of they get the last word. So, like, why not have the the stellar minds thing? Is why not have people who are deliberately con- cultivating ecstasis in their own lives and in their own communities who have good, positive things to say and do? Let's give them some of the spotlight. And oh, by the way here's the gorilla tantra here's how you actually blow yourself sky high with like nobody needs to talk about their feelings yes okay that's, that's <laughs> my hair just man. blew off yeah, yeah. i can't wait for that one yeah well hey man thanks we're gonna for have that yeah we're gonna have to have you back for sure after that yeah, yeah. yeah. excellent awesome yeah uh li- listen listeners go to mindpumpmedia.com we're still offering 30 days of coaching for free also check us out on instagram at mind pump radio you can find my page at mind pump sal Adam at Mind Pump Adam and Justin at Mind Pump Justin. Thank you for listening to Mind Pump. If your goal is to build and shape your body, dramatically improve your health and energy, and maximize your overall performance, check out our discounted RGB Super Bundle at mindpumpmedia.com. The RGB Super Bundle includes MAPS Anabolic, MAPS Performance, and MAPS Aesthetic. Nine months of phased expert exercise programming designed by Sal, Adam, and Justin to systematically transform the way your body looks, feels, and performs. With detailed workout blueprints and over 200 videos, the RGB Super Bundle is like having Sal, Adam, and Justin as your own personal trainers, but at a fraction of the price. The RGB Super Bundle has a full 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can get it now plus other valuable free resources at mindpumpmedia.com. 
If you enjoy this show, please share the love by leaving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes and by introducing Mind Pump to your friends and family. We thank you for your support. And until next time, this is Mind Pump.